Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. So I'm sitting here with um, Dr. Chris White, who podcast listeners will know is my co-host of the special series of COP26 University Network, University of Strathclyde, Planet Pod combo. Um, and Chris, this is really exciting because you have been in the inner sanctum today. You've been inside the infamous blue zone of the COP26 conference. What was it like? Um, thanks, Amanda. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate today to um, have uh, a pass um, from the University of Strathclyde to get down into the blue zone. Um, what was it like? It was... Um, quite an experience actually it was it's it's a very big conference uh, with uh, an awful lot of people from from uh, across the world there i think it's about 10,000 people in the conference today um my kind of overriding sort of feeling or uh, i suppose feedback from uh, from the days it it sort of felt like a bit of a conference within a conference because ours in the blue zone which is where the majority of uh, observers and, and delegates um, uh, are, and there's lots of shows, trade shows, and, and country stands, and that kind of thing. But we're separate from where the real negotiations are going on, from where the world leaders are. Um, they uh, are in a different building, a different part, still within in that that blue zone. So um, uh, it was a fascinating day, pretty full on, um, but uh, yeah, still one step removed from from where the real action is going on. So you didn't bump into Joe Biden in the lift? No, I'm afraid not. Um, I, I kept my eyes open um, for anyone that looked vaguely sort of uh, world leadery, uh, but unfortunately, no, uh, couldn't couldn't find anyone. It's interesting you say that because there has been criticism that the actual real action is very divorced from the city and from the rest of us. And, and, you know, I've been around city today and it's interesting, you know, there's cop branding everywhere and there's an electric shuttle bus and, you know, there's all sorts of things happening. But people don't feel really connected and engaged with what's going on inside those negotiations. And we need to because we're relying on these people to make some really significant commitments and changes because if we don't, you know, we are last chance saloon. So, so I suppose that sense of not feeling connected is one of the criticisms that you could level at COP. Yes, and, and you know, this is my first COP. This is the first time I've been there. And, and But equally speaking to people that have been through this process before have said pretty much that, that there is this layering, that there is a, you know, um, the world leaders and then the others and then the general public. And, and maybe by necessity, security, of course, um, there has to be a bit of separation. But one, I think, overriding sort of bit of feedback or feeling from people like myself that were there today was we would have loved to have had just that extra, that stronger connection with what was was going on. The first thing I did, for instance, when I left was check the news to actually find out what had been going on at COP today because, I mean, it's... It's a show, there's so much going on, but you don't really know what's been going on with the negotiations. You don't know what's been going on. Have any decisions been made? Has there been any progress? Um, you, you, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's its own sort of world. But, and this is where I guess it, 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 there's a real positive in, in here, is that it was so great to see so many countries um, there, in, and people from all nationalities interacting, discussing, and, and I know as a, as a scientist, I typically go to science conferences, 
the best connections, the best conversations, the best progress is made with those one-on-one, often casual, off-the-cuff type of conversations that then filter to something else. And I'm sure there are some very high-level conversations, discussions going on in the area where I was, that of course I was not, not privy to, not part of, but they in turn will then of course feed up to the top table, the top tier, which is really where the world leaders are. So it is a multi-layered process, um, even if we perhaps can't quite get to, to world <laughs> leaders themselves. Well, you know, it's really important. Those conversations that happen in the fringe, those countries that are there that are represented, that connection between the NGOs and the policymakers, even if it's if it's brief, is really vital to the success of this conference. But you were able to grab somebody, weren't you? You were able to do a bit of roving reporter on the ground, caught you in caught you by the stands conversation, and you spoke to Stephen Cornelius who's a climate advisor for WWF, which is the Worldwide Fund for Nature, as we know. And we're just going to hear a little bit of that now. It's a bit noisy, everybody, so bear with Chris, because, you know, he couldn't stop the other 10,000 people talking while he was talking. Uh, I'm with Stephen Cornelius uh, from WWF. Um, Stephen, would you like to um, introduce yourself properly, uh, perhaps, and describe your role for WWF? Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm the... Chief Advisor on Climate Change at WWF UK. Uh, I spent 10 years as a climate negotiator for the British government before this. Um, And my role here at the COP26 Climate Summit is to talk with countries, um, to help organise events on nature and and climate change. Okay, thank you. We're here, obviously, in Glasgow. We've got two weeks ahead of us, or another 10, 11 days after today. Um, What are your realistic hopes and expectations from the COP process? Um, What would you like to see a success by the end of of these two weeks? Uh, Yeah, I think the main thing out of COP, I mean, there's a few things that can make make it a success, but what we want um, the Glasgow COP26 to to do is to show that the Paris Agreement is working. So the Paris Agreement is six years old. It's designed to limit global uh, warming to one and a half degrees with the idea that that averts the worst of the climate crisis. Uh, And to make that happen, countries need to come forward with uh, pledges to limit global warming more than they are already. And do you think there are... Uh, do you think there are some countries that are more likely to pull their weight in this process? Do you think there's some that are going to be harder to get on board? And, and I guess thinking from specifically from a WWF perspective, are there particular areas of the globe where the impacts are that much greater than others, where you would like to see the most action and I suppose the most positive impact coming from COP to, to be? So I think the first point is, you know, climate change is a, a global problem and, and so it needs a global solution and so it needs all countries to in, be involved. So, so we know that to limit temperature, so the science from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says that you know, the only way you can limit global warming to any temperature is to get to net zero carbon emissions. And so for that to happen, we, we, know, we know all countries have to be involved. Um, the big emitters, so you know, your ones in the G20 that covers about 80% of the global emissions, they clearly need to do more than what they, they said in the in, in a statement from Italy um, the last uh, yesterday. So, um, in terms of where impacts are worst, I mean, there's there's impacts happening all around the world. 
Um, the, again, the IPCC says there's, there's no inhabited area of the globe that is not impacted by climate change now. And that's at 1.1 degree of global warming. So we know things are happening now. We know they're happening from you know, the Arctic where sea ice is getting lower and lower and that impacts uh, wildlife such as polar bear and walrus. We know that there's impacts that we're seeing from, you know, we had huge, uh, you know, five degrees Celsius warmer, hotter temperature than had ever been reached in Canada before this year. And, you know, it just incredible heat waves. So Canada, Pakistan, around the Mediterranean, we had these heat waves. We had, you know, resulting fires in Canada, um, fires in the Amazon, fires in Australia. So all these impacts are happening. Um, you know, even in the UK, you know, you've seen, you know, I. I came up from London, a lot of people came up from London. My train on Friday was um, cancelled because of flooding. Um, and that was a minor inconvenience because I could go via Edinburgh and get to Glasgow. But you know, there are floods that have happened this year that you know, killed people in Germany, killed people in China. So you know, these are, you know, there are impacts happening all around the world already. Um, this might be a di difficult question to pass, unpack, but um, do you feel that some of the greatest threats to wildlife, to biodiversity, are from, I suppose, the gradual change in our underlying climate, so our climate averages, the general perhaps, warming of temperatures, or is it, perhaps as you were describing there, which is more the direct impact of events? I particularly work, for instance, in extreme events, so I'm particularly interested in what your thoughts are around um, uh, those direct impacts versus those, those longer-term uh, longer changes. So I think um, both are important and both will have impacts on wildlife. So you have a slow um, impact such as warming, such as sea level rise that will impact wildlife. And you know, the, the sort of classic idea of they can move, adapt or die. Uh, and, and that, you know, so, so we are seeing those impacts. But, you know, there's also the more severe shock impacts of extreme events and they can mean that you know if a if an extreme drought and heat leads to wildfires then there may not be food there may not be shelter for the animals that are there and so those extreme events uh, are clearly uh, impactful too. Do you, do you think the agendas of uh, environmental crisis, biodiversity crisis, climate crisis, do you feel they've sort of come together somewhat in the last few years to me they were separate not not, not physically but separate issues at least with being dealt with separately do you feel now they're on the same agenda as each other it's certainly getting there i mean the idea that uh, climate change and biodiversity loss um and uh, you know two sides two sides of the same coin you know you you need to you can't deal with successfully deal with one without dealing with the other so as well as being in the blue zone today and actually talking to some of the official inverted commas delegates, we've got a far more exciting thing to tell you about. And that is the culmination of a very, very long walk that's been, I think it was fair to say it was instigated by you, wasn't it? So I've got Rick Casali with me from Carbon Copy. Rick, this was your brainchild, was it not? Uh, well, not as such. So um, it was originally conceived by Sam Baker and I joined his team. He basically uh, wanted to get about six people together and uh, we all come from different backgrounds and he really conceived the idea of us walking from London to Glasgow and the reason why I joined um, is 
it felt very true to what we are trying to do in, in our charity, Carbon Copy, which is to showcase all the amazing examples up and down the country of people taking action on the climate crisis. And what better way to do that than on foot, you know, meeting people face to face, seeing what they're doing, where they are, where they're working. Um, and so that's how that really fitted really nicely. And I, I signed up. And just because we love stats, how far have you walked and how many days did it take you? So um, we're talking right now, I've just finished. So literally, the, literally, first, just walked in through literally the first thing that I'm doing is talking to Amanda, which is wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely, um, as it should be. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so it has been 500 miles uh, from Camden uh, to here, to Strath Union, which is our finishing point. Uh, and it has taken us uh, 26 days. So on average, we've been walking about 20 miles a day, um, which uh, is quite ambitious. We knew it was ambitious from the start. Um, and I'm very glad that we've, we've done it. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to taking my walking boots off. I still have my walking boots on. He still on. has his walking boots on. Yeah. And I have to tell you, he looks just as if he's just stepped off a bus. He doesn't look like a man who's just walked 500 well, miles. I one, say. one of the things that I have found, uh, perhaps is one of the things that surprised me the most, is um, although the walk itself is obviously physically quite gruelling, um, because we had arranged to meet up with people and hear their stories and what they're up to, that was so energising. It kind of took our minds off of the walk and what we had to do the following day. And we're just captivated by what they're doing. And a lot of the energy that they have rubs off on you. Yeah. So uh, I think if it had just been, let's walk 500 miles, it would have felt very different. It would have, it would have all have been about us and the challenge. And it wasn't ever meant to be about us. The walk was really a, a mechanism for us to engage with people. Yeah, and you are one of a number of groups who've, you know, on a kind of Camino, who've come up to, to COP by various different mechanisms and means, and some on foot and, you know, some cycling. And, and there's been a whole range of people coming. And that's a really important part of this conference, isn't it? Because this is about engaging communities across the globe, but certainly here across the UK, yes. in what is probably the last chance we've got to get this right. So tell us a little bit about some of those communities that you've met and some of the things that have stood out from you in the last 26 days of, yeah. of, of real community taking hold and making a difference type projects. Um, and can I just, before I get into that, say one of the things that we um, latched onto in terms of how we approached our walk a little bit differently from the other groups. And, and like you say, we've started to bump into many more groups, especially in the last couple of days. We're obviously all physically converging on the same point. But one of the things uh, at a high level that COP would like to get uh, out of this summit is uh, people working together more. And obviously from their perspective, they're probably thinking uh, internationally and globally. Um, but we took that to heart. And what we wanted to do was see how people are already working together across different organisations, across their silos uh, locally. And so... When we put the walk together, we put together a number of events, and those events brought together different organisations from both public, private, voluntary sectors. That is um, the carbon copy model, isn't it? Trying to get that cross-silo working. It is. So that fitted very well with our own charity. But it was really nice, especially as during the past year and a bit of COVID, we haven't had the chance to do this face-to-face, -face, and we've all missed that. And so this walk was one of the first opportunities since... Uh, we've, we've had a, a lifting of some of the restrictions to, to actually get people in the same room together and to do so from different organisations. And 
what was nice was just for them to play back a little bit that they really appreciated talking with people, even in the same area they knew of, mm-hmm. but hadn't necessarily met to have this discussion around uh, the climate crisis and what they could do. So in some small way, it was really nice to make some of those, those connections. Um, I think your, your, your question, so sorry I went off on a bit of a tangent. No, 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 was, it's good, because it's good to hear why, I suppose, why you're yeah, doing it and the kind of bigger um, framing. So I think your question was more around uh, the kinds of community actions that we saw. And it was a wide variety, to be honest, uh, and quite deliberately so, because I think the climate um, conversation is getting ever wider. And so we wanted to illustrate that a little bit with the kinds of people and initiatives that we came across. So um, we came across um, an eco-village that uh, basically was effectively like a co-op of uh, individual people working on different aspects. It could be a circular economy, etc. And in and of themselves, they didn't have enough um, to be able to maybe afford a premise premises or they, they didn't have enough resources to, to create awareness for what they were doing. But in this co-op environment, they actually had a physical location. They had sufficient presence that they could really draw people in. And it just got the momentum going in a way that they couldn't have done so individually. So that was a really nice example of different individuals that were full of initiative, working together more collaboratively so that they could stand out more. And they became a real focal point for the area. Mm. And this was in uh, Market Harbour. Um, we also came across a couple of different examples of people solving the the challenge and the opportunity of reducing food waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of excess food, that, as we know, goes to waste. Uh, what can restaurants, um, wholesale markets um, and supermarkets do about this? And the challenge is really how do you get that food that would otherwise just go to landfill to potentially the community fridges and the, the points where it can then go to people that really need it. We saw a couple of great examples, one in Milton Keynes and one elsewhere, where they'd come up with a zero uh, carbon transport solution, oh, cargo fantastic. bikes, etc., because that was the last mile that yeah. was needed to be filled yeah. or else you know, the two wouldn't be able to talk to one another. Um, most recently, we've been in, up in Scotland. We've had a lot of rain <laughs> A lot of rain. In Scotland, that's what you expect. It is what we expect. But um, So we were spoiled because uh, early on um, we had some nice sunny dry weather, but we, we got more than enough rain to make up for it. And we went to the Langholm uh, Institute, which was a peat restoration oh, uh, project, which, as we know, restoring peatlands is so important in terms of an effective carbon sink. And there's so much more that we can do mm. to protect those. And the thing that was amazing about this example is it was the community that came together um, that through a combination of crowdfunding, uh, grants, etc., bought uh, the land off of private land holders. Uh, the first tranche of land was literally 3,000 acres, so huge, wow. like really big scale. Um, they're going for another 2,000 on top of that. And... The reason for doing it is the community wants to restore the peatlands that are close to where they are and also to uh, enhance biodiversity. And I think that's a wonderful example of the community really taking it upon themselves to do something like this that would go on in perpetuity. Yeah. And is that... That's really what this is all about, isn't it? This is about, I mean, we talk, you know, the leaders are meeting and they're making some big commitments, we hope. But actually, this is about communities grabbing this agenda and 
doing things for themselves because we all have to be involved in this solving the climate crisis. And, and it's interesting that you've picked on three very different examples, all of which are actually key to, to us making progress and towards a net zero world. So, Rick, I probably should let you go and put your feet up and have a beer or two. Um, thank you so much for, for, for stopping off and talking to us. And just as we close, just one thing, what, what are you hoping that COP will do? You know, what's your kind of hope for the next, the next fortnight? Well, I do hope that they will deliver on some of their big objectives uh, that they've laid out at the beginning. So obviously we all want to uh, renew those commitments so that we can keep within the 1.5 degree uh, temperature rise. Uh, we want to look at the, the funding that needs to go into making um, those less uh, well-off um, countries in terms of impact on the, on the climate to give them the resources that they need. And then also this working together element, I think that's something that really just transcends policymakers and is something that we can all take away from this. Yeah, and of course that goes way beyond just the two weeks that we're in Glasgow. Absolutely. That's setting the yeah. tone for the future. Thank you so much. And Thank, I, Thank you <laughs> I very much. four feet are not too blistered and sore. Thank you so much, Amanda. Great to talk to you. Likewise. Bye now. You've been listening to Planet Pod up here in Glasgow for COP26, the second in our series of special COP broadcasts and programmes. Um, do keep in touch. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram or email us, um, beth at theplanetpod.com, if you have a story you'd like us to cover during COP. Uh, thanks for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.